This is Jason Smith, and you're listening to That Sober Guy Podcast. That Sober Guy Podcast contains adult content, merciless truth, and emotional nudity. Listener discretion is advised. Broadcasting from the West Coast of the Golden State, the nation's most straightforward recovery talk show, That Sober Guy Podcast, helping to keep your brain sharp and your blood clean. And now, Shane Raymer. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the show. Shane Raymer, That Sober Guy Podcast, in case you missed the intro. I don't really know that that's possible, but just in case... What's up? We got a great show for you today. We got Jason Smith coming on. He's going to talk about his article, Kingpins, Oxycontin, Heroin, and the Sackler-Sinaloa Connection. It's a damn good conversation. Don't miss it. First, a word from our sponsor. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well as the family members who were caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery, and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Go check out some of the gear they got there. They got some fresh hats, some shirts, tank tops, all kinds of cool shit on there. Check it out. SoberNation.com. This episode is also brought to you by That Sober Guy Meetings. Go to thatsoberguy.com, click on the Live Meetings tab, and register for the next Sunday morning live online recovery support group meeting. I'm going to read a quick email. This comes from Jess. Jess says, just found your podcast. I've listened to most all of the episodes in about a week. That's awesome. Great stuff. Please keep it up. It helps me get in the right frame of mind when I listen. Thank you. Jess, you are very welcome, and thank you for reaching out, dropping a little line, a little feedback of the show. We love that here. We encourage all the listeners to do that. Send us an email. Show us uh, or tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Tell me to fuck off. I don't care. Just uh, hit us up. Also, leave us a review on iTunes. Best way to support the show. Helps rank the show. Helps people find that Sober Guy podcast easily. You can also donate to the show. Go to thatsoberguy.com, click on the donate button, donate a few bucks. I understand if you can't do that. We're all squeezed for cash right now as the middle class slowly depletes. So no worries. That's why I always say the iTunes is the best way to support us. But if you're a rich motherfucker, hey, drop a couple hundred grand in the bucket. No problem. We're going to do day nine of the 14 days to building self-esteem. And then we're going to get to this interview with Jason Smith. Um... Which is fucking awesome, by the way. I had a great time talking with him. Uh, the guy's very knowledgeable. He's a good dude. He's been through uh, the depths of uh, of hell, really, to hell and back, I guess. Uh, if you if you check out his book, The Bitter Taste of Dying, we actually had Jason on the show back on episode fifty two to discuss some of his book. And as we talked a little bit further, we uh, we got into the 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 short conversation at the time about big pharma and uh, doctors prescribing opiate pills uh, to people who really don't need them. And that led into kind of the epidemic of heroin, uh, the heroin epidemic in this country and uh, prescription pills, which I found out at the time Jason was working on an article. So he's back today and he's going to discuss this article. Like I said at the beginning, it's called Kingpins and it's very, very interesting. So stay tuned for that. First, we're going to do day nine of the 14 days to building self-esteem. And uh, if you if you're new to this, go back to episode 50 and you can start with day one of the 14 days to building self-esteem. And I do one one a week. This is day nine. 
It is time that I realize that most human beings are doing the best that his or her state of awareness permits, and therefore, I will not criticize, condemn, or resent others. When I resent someone else, I'm actually hurting myself much more than the other person by spending precious energy on negativity. When I condemn others, I'm disliking the part of me that I don't want to see. I need to be more honest and accepting of myself so that I can be more accepting of others. Today's meditation. Give me the courage to love, to forgive others, and to realize that their journey is as difficult as mine. That's something that uh, if you can keep in mind, you can keep in mind when we're quick to judge or quick to criticize because we're at a place in our lives where we want to be, but maybe someone we care about is still stuck, still doing the same things. We got to realize that they're going through things that we don't know about, number one, they may be. And number two, everyone's at different points in their journey. So if we can try to find a way to accept that, doesn't mean we have to agree with it, but if we can try to find a way to accept it and not criticize, really it's going to free us. And that's the ultimate goal. And then when when that day comes, and hopefully that person we care about comes around, we can really be there to support them. In today's exercise, I think this is one of the best ones that we've had yet out of all the days. List one person who I will forgive today. If possible, tell that person that I forgive them and hope that they can forgive my resentment. Do you have one person out there that you could forgive today? Who would it be? Think about it. I'm sure there's somebody. Today I will remember, by forgiving others for their faults, I lighten my own burden. One more time. By forgiving others for their faults, I lighten my own burden. Day nine, 14 days to building self-esteem. We went through it a little quick today. I understand that. I've been doing them on that Sober Guy meetings too. So you actually get a preview of the day coming up if you join the meeting on Sundays. So we'll have day 10 on Sunday morning meeting, and then we'll have it on next week's podcast as well. So stay tuned for that. Next up, my good homie, Jason Smith. Today, we're talking with Jason Smith, author of The Bitter Taste of Dying, co-founder and creative director of TheRealEdition.com, and we're welcoming Jason to the show today. How you doing, man? Good, man. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. It's a pleasure to have you on again. I've been excited about this uh, conversation we're, we're going to have today. First, the article that we're kind of discussing today is called Kingpin's Oxycontin Heroin and the Sackler Sinaloa Connection. And before we get into that article, we're going to talk to Jason a little bit about the Unite rally that he recently attended out in D.C., man. So uh, I know you went out there. I know I, I know that there was thousands of people that went to it. Um, what was your experience like uh, spending some time out there? I thought, you know, uh, what it did do is it brought a lot of people from all over the country and a lot, and a lot of people who maybe worked together in the digital realm um, and, and brought us face-to-face, and I thought that was great, um, you know, getting a chance to meet um, other writers or, um, you know, just people with the voice uh, in, 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 in trying to, you know, put words to this struggle. And so I thought it, was, I thought it did a great job um, you know, in terms of, of pulling people in, uh, the rally itself, I thought, you know, like the, the Sunday concert and things like that, it was interesting. Um, you know, it, it's, I, I think anytime you're going to have an event this big and especially with musicians, you know, with big names, then you start bringing in business managers and you start bringing in agents and you start bringing in those things. And then it turns a little bit into a business. 
Um, and sometimes that business, I think, can butt up against the original reason for the rally. And so I, I, I you know, but it, I mean, overall, it was, it was good. You know, I, I was, uh, um, it was a good experience. I agree with you. When you start getting so many people involved in big events, I'm not, and I'm not just talking about the Unite rally itself, but I've been involved in seeing other things. Uh, sometimes it can get a bit watered down a bit when you get too many people in there like that. But yeah, regardless of that, the cause to unite people in the fight against addiction and, and bringing awareness to it um, sounds like it was a really good event. Yeah, it's a good event. I mean, and, and if you think about it, like it's, it's like you said, the cause. What what's I think anytime you do an event like this, um, I personally, I like to be able to walk away knowing whether we were successful or we weren't. Because if we were, then we can replicate it and scale it. And if we weren't, then we can find out why and figure out why and then change it. And I think when you have a, a concept like um, Unite for Addiction or, uh, we, they, you know, in the stigma, and you know, you hear these things a lot. And to me, that's not a measurable objective. You know, you can't walk away. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think the stigma of addiction across the country, um, or even in Washington, D.C. that day, was any different the day after the rally than it was the day before the rally. Okay. I think it, you know, I don't know if anybody was more united, if that was the goal, after the rally than they were before. Uh, I think they're, the group that came, came united. Um, I think the group that came has already... Uh, eliminated that stigma of addiction in their mind in terms of what, what an addict looks like and what it means to be a drug addict. We already came with those things and we left with those things. Um, my thing is, well, what, how are we going to take what we've learned and what we know and what, what we believe, you know, that feeling of being united yeah. and how are we going to take that and spread it when we get home? And I didn't feel like there was a, a clear, um, message or a clear directive or a clear suggestion for that. And so, you know, then, so then it just kind of left me with a little bit of an empty feeling afterward. Um, of, well, what did we really get done? And what, what are we doing now? Uh, you know, the awareness of addiction, everyone's already aware of addiction. The average person on the street is aware. It's like, you know, Lance, uh, Lance Armstrong's cancer foundation to spread awareness of, of cancer. Everyone already knew about cancer. Uh, you know, let's draw, everyone already knows about cancer. And, and so, well, what is it doing to combat it? What's it doing to stop it? What's it doing to fund research? What's it doing to fund treatment? And I felt like, I feel like right now with addiction, it's easy to have these, you know, these grand goals that sound really good, but they're not really measurable. And if they're not measurable, we can't determine if it's working or not. Damn. So, I mean, you brought up, you brought up quite a few good points there. Let's, um, let's take this and events like this and, we kind of break them down. We look at the pros, the cons of them. Yeah, and I think, you know, things like, uh, I'll give you an example. And I, and I seem to be the only one bothered by this. So maybe this could just be me. Um, but, you know, at the concert, you when you walked onto the National Mall, there's a, a, a stage, and it was, it was beautifully set up. Uh, and immediately when you walk in, there's a VIP section to the left, closer to the stage, and then there's the free section. And, I mean, that's normal at a concert, right? You There's always a yeah, VIP yeah. section that people pay more money. You know, they pay a good amount of money to be backstage and meet musicians and to be closer to the action, which is cool, man. If, if that, but call it, if that's the case, let's just call it a concert. Because, yeah. it, it, to me, it seems silly. It seems uh, counterproductive to have a, a rally called Unite. And then the first thing you do at the Unite rally is divide. 
And, you know, so the moment you walk in, you're divided. You've got the VIP section and you've got the free section. And uh, it's like, well, if I, what's the goal here? Is the goal to raise money? Because those VIP tickets, I'm sure, raise money. And if that's the case, that's fine. Like, that's, that's cool. I understand. Like, we have to raise money. I'm sure that thing wasn't cheap to put on. Um, but then it just, let's just call it a fundraiser. Let's just call it, you know, let's call it what it is. Like, this is a chance to make money um, to support this cause. But don't call it a unite rally when the first thing you do is, is disunite people. You know, you, you're, you're dividing them up. And so, you know, and, and, but that's just me. I mean, that's just me because nobody else seems to um, question that. And so uh, it could just be me having a skewed perspective and, and uh, not really understanding the complexities of putting something like that on. That's like entirely possible. I could be really wrong on this. Well, but that, that was just something that stood out to me. Uh, yeah, and I, I see I see both sides of it like you're pointing out. I mean, I'm sure the complexity of putting something together on such a massive scale like this, there's like like we were saying earlier, I mean there's so much there's so many people involved. Um there's probably a lot of money involved, a lot of different elements. Um at the same time, I see what you're saying. You walk in and it's a Unite rally and automatically you're divided because this person has $300 or $400 or whatever it is to pay for a VIP ticket and these other people are hanging out, you know, on the grass or wherever, you know, wherever it is. Um it it completely makes sense and uh, I'll point out this. That's the beauty that's the beautiful thing of this country is we have we have a right to our freedom of speech and uh, a right to our own opinion and uh, we hope that this sparks some uh some conversations in Involved, you know, so that that maybe uh, maybe next time we continue to improve. Um, yeah, for sure. And it's I mean, these are all complex issues, and and, and that's totally. uh, I mean, that is a good sort of transition into the article. Is is this is these are all complex, and I think the more we realize that we like as individuals, I, the more I realize I don't have all the answers. I don't. I'm yeah. not always right. I could be wrong. Um, I want to learn. I think I think going into a rally like that with that mindset of being willing and being open-minded, and those are all program principles, uh, you know, but being um, open-minded enough to look at things from a different perspective or being open-minded enough to question what we've always believed, I think that's, that's, that's really important. And I think as a movement, you know, if we are going to eventually do something about what's going on in this country right now regarding drug addiction, then that's, I think we're going to have to have that mindset. Yeah, I would 100% agree. And I agree. That's a great uh, kind of segue into into this article you wrote. The article is titled Kingpins, Oxycontin, Heroin, and the Sackler-Sinaloa Connection. Let's start here. I'm going to read this first paragraph from, from this article. And uh, it, it starts like this. It says, it's not every day a drug kingpin makes Forbes magazine most powerful people's list. But thanks to power generated by total domination of illegal narcotic sales, that's exactly where Joaquin Chapo Guzman found himself in 2013 when Forbes ranked him the 67th most powerful man on the planet out of 7.1 billion people. That is unbelievable to me. Um, What's your take on that? Obviously, you wrote the article, but uh, elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, well, you know, what was interesting was, um, look, on a macro scale, I think what, what we do, we tend to do is we see a problem and, and we, we look at the problem, um, you know, and we try to, uh, you know, understand, um, just from where we are today. So, uh, what I tried to do with this article was I, I, I imagined, 
I imagine a, a dude on the street using heroin, right? Yeah. And he's shooting up with heroin. I wanted to backtrack his addiction to the Genesis in uh-huh. terms of the products he's using. And so if they started with Oxford, like I wanted to back up and find out how did this happen. And with this story, actually, the way it came about was I was watching the news back in July, and there was the story of Chapo Guzman who dug, you know, once again his way he dug his way out of prison. Yeah. And and it was a big, you know, where did he go? How did this happen? Type of thing on CNN. And then right after that, there was a story about the Sackler family making Forbes. <laughs> and how it was somewhat controversial. And so I, I looked at these two, right? I, I was watching the news, and I looked at these two, and I remember thinking, and I said to my wife, I said, what? I said, what's the difference? Yeah, yep. Like, what? really, what's the difference? And what bothered me so much wasn't the fact that they each had made forwards. Um, what bothered me was the way that each of their stories was presented on the news that day, um, where the Sacklers were really, you know, this, this family, uh, this American family of industry, uh, and Guzman was some scumbag drug dealer, you know? And, and I, that's how they were um, being projected on the news, and that bothered me. And so I, I really wanted to sort of go back and, and learn how did this happen. Um, and so with Guzman, yeah, I mean, you, you, you see that he made Forbes the most powerful people, um, and that, that's why I wrote it that way, you know, um, out of the pl- on the planet of 7.1 billion, just to put in perspective, like he's at the top in terms of power. And, and he got that way because of the appetite in America for the drugs that he smuggles. Yeah. And, and so I, you know, it, it's not, it's not like he's bringing the, all these drugs into the United States and, and we're, oh, okay, I guess we'll take them. You know, it's like, no, there's a demand for him. We're demanding, he can't get him over the border fast enough to, to feed us. Yeah, I said his net worth is estimated to be $1 billion, putting him just below Oprah and somewhere north of Paul McCartney. So if you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> once you start looking at them, I mean, because it's, it's, it's like we have, we have the underworld and then we have our world, and we never really put them next to one another. And that's what I was trying to do is bring him into the mix in terms of how we view celebrities and how we view power in this country. Uh, and. We, you know, he's between Paul McCartney and Oprah. You know, that's that's power. That's money. You know, that that's that's impressive. And the fact that that uh, Guzman has to do it, and and the the hoops that he has to jump through to get his product in versus illegal, uh, what a legal product would, is like ridiculous. And so, um, the fact that he's able to generate that much power and that much wealth off of a product that we're trying to stop. Um, that our government's actively, or at least they're supposed to be actively trying to stop, is, is makes it even more impressive. You know, I think there's a lot of us out there, and, and and this is this is a perfect example with myself. Is I always a lot of people know about the cartels, and a lot of people have heard uh, Chapo. We've seen him on the news. Um, we. I bet you the majority of us have at least a little idea of of what is going on in that uh, in that organization or that light um as far as the sacklers go i didn't really know much about them if anything at all i think i had heard the name maybe briefly um until i read this article so maybe we can start there and um why don't you why don't you kind of explain a little bit jason um who the sacklers are and uh, how they came um how they came with um yeah a patent on oxycontin right yeah and actually uh just real quick on the patent what's interesting about the patent is um, you get it? So when you get a patent, it's a twenty-year patent for a pharmaceutical. Meaning, um, a company can can have a hold a patent and rate gets its 
the, you know, theoretically, they get all their money that they spend on research and development and things like that back in those 20 years before another company can make a generic on it. And what was interesting about uh, OxyContin was um, because they changed the tablet in 2012, uh, where they, where you couldn't crush it up or snort it and the FDA made it mandatory. Um, they actually got a new patent from then on. So they're actually getting, they got the patent from 1995 to 2012 and they got a brand new 20 year patent from 2012 forward. Wow. Meaning that, meaning that they're going to, you know, end up, uh, how many years is that? 12, uh, 17 years plus 20. So they're going to end up with a 37 year patent on this drug. Wow. Um, which is crazy. And it also raises a question of, of why did, of maybe why they waited so long before they changed the tablet, because they were getting complaints about the drug being crushed up as early as 2000. And so they waited from 2000, they waited another 12 years before they actually did something about it. And there are, um, you know, people who, who would say that they did that because they were able to extract the most out of the, the patent system. Got it. But uh, going back to your going back to your question about the Sacklers, I didn't. The, the thing that was interesting about those articles, I came into it. I didn't know anything about them either. I knew. I mean, I knew the name and I knew Purdue, um, and, and uh, I knew for the story what I was going. I wanted to do was I wanted to sort of retrace the the um, the sort of mass production of OxyContin in this country. I wanted to retrace it back to Purdue. Um, but I realized in, when I started writing the story that to do that, I was going to have to retrace the evolution of Purdue Pharmaceutical, which would mean I would have to retrace the steps of the Sackler brothers. And and so when I came into this, I didn't know much about I I, I, I mean, it, this was probably a good, uh, you know, month of just straight research um, on, on this story because I didn't, you know, I came, I didn't come into this story with all this information. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I kind of, you know, like you, I came into it without much knowledge on the Sacklers also. And one thing I want to correct, I'm not sure if the, the Purdue changed the tablet in 2010 or 2012, um, but I want to correct that because it, it might have been a 15-year plus a 20. But, um, yeah, I mean, Arthur, so Arthur Sackler uh, was the oldest brother, and he, um, I mean, he changed the game when it came to pharmaceutical advertising. Uh, he bought into um, an advertising firm in New York in the 1950s, um, and, and that was at a time when, when medicine was changing drastically, uh, and quickly. And so you've, you've got all these new drugs on the market and basically Arthur Sackler, uh, he understood the human mind, uh, he understood the human brain. Um, and, uh, he kind of used his, he was, he had a foot in both worlds. He was an advertiser and a marketer, but he was also, he had a you know, degree in medicine. And, um, he was, he basically, understood before anybody else did uh, the importance of being able to convince doctors to prescribe your drug. And, and this was re- this was revolutionary thinking because prior to this, the doctor would, would come up with it on their own. And so uh, Arthur Sackler um, became, uh, and, and there's actually, and I, and I say this in the story, you know, in Medical Advertising Hall of Fame, um, you know, he's in it for... Um, innovative techniques, as they call them, um, in terms of advertising on television and advertising in medical journals and, and it, trying to basically get a doctor uh, outside of his practice. So, for example, you know, when they're at home eating uh, dinner with their family, uh, watching television, or they're at home reading a newspaper or a medical journal to drop, um, you know, little hints in the, in, to promote the, the medicine that he's that he's trying to promote, and so 
um, long story short, he ended up uh, down the line becoming, um, you know, he made Valium the first uh, drug to make a hundred million dollars profit. Um, you know, so he he changed the game, as, you know, when it came to pharmaceutical advertising. On the flip side of that, he had two brothers who in the 1950s bought a small uh, pharmaceutical company called Purdue Frederick and Company. And basically, it was a, a company, they didn't, they weren't what we consider Purdue today. They make septics and antiseptics and lac, laxatives and, you know, things like that. Yeah. And so, um, you know, on, you've got this one brother who's who's become this sort of pharmaceutical marketing genius, and you've got the other two brothers who bought by a pharmaceutical company. So it was only a matter of time before, um, you know, they combined forces, which is what happened. And in it, uh, Raymond and Mortimer Sack, uh, Marsackler, um, brought Arthur in, and the three of them, uh, in the 1980s, you know, they were able to develop, um, you know, what would eventually become Oxycontin. Yeah, that's, uh, that's crazy. Then they, then they patent it, uh, which is even more crazy how you can patent uh, a drug. I love too that you're, you were talking about basically like a hall of fame for this and this guy's in it. Um, he's a, he's a glorified drug dealer that we celebrate. And because it's legal in, in quotes, I put that again. Um, it's okay to do it. Real well, quick. I think we also have to be careful though. I think we have to be careful because I think just because there are pharmaceuticals out there that do help people. Good. Yes, and, that's, a, and, that's a great and point. To save people, there are people who might depend on a drug like OxyContin, sure. and they might really need it. They're in, they have cancer, they're post-op or whatever. Um, and, and I think, so to me, where Purdue broke down, where the Sackler family broke down the system, was when they determined that those people that the medication was necessary for um, so in other words, you know, someone, uh, with cancer, terminal cancer or somebody who was in a tremendous amount of pain, had they just kept the drug for those people, then I think they should be celebrated because then they're benefiting yes. humanity. They're benefiting society. People's lives are better who, uh, because of them. Had they just done that? But the problem is that doesn't make a lot of profit because there aren't a whole lot of people coming out of surgery. There aren't, you know, there aren't a whole lot of people in, in the type of, you know, in cancer-type pain. And uh, so when the Sackler family decided and when Purdue decided that they were going to target, uh, you know, chronic pain, and they were going to they were going to target that because everyone has some kind of chronic pain, right? Everybody, yeah. Everybody's in some sort of pain. That, to me, is where, where uh, they either fall to the level uh, you know, of somebody bringing illegal drugs, or we have to rise the people who bring illegal drugs up onto their level. But it does, you're right; it does have to be even, and it does have to be consistent. But that's the point. Not so much the creation of the drug itself, because the drug isn't evil. The drug, there's nothing evil about OxyContin. It's the way it was marketed. It was the way it was sold to doctors. And, and, and so that, to me, is where where that's the sinister part of the story. Not so much the creation of the drug, but how the drug was then released into the American public. That, to me, is the sinister part. Yeah, that's that's a great point, man. And thank you for bringing that up and kind of dividing that up because I, I, I do agree with you. There's uh, plenty of pharmaceuticals, plenty of medication out there that helps you know thousands of people out there. And so I, I do want to uh, just, uh, yeah, thank, thank you for uh, pointing that yeah, out. Yeah, and you know, but at the same time, I got a letter. I got a, So I got an email from somebody after this story was released by, from somebody connected to Purdue. And uh, they obviously weren't pleased. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it, it said there was a, they, they gave me a little scenario 
They said, um, at somewhere tonight at three, two, three o'clock in the morning, there's going to be a woman on the floor in agony and pain because she can't get sufficient pain management from her doctor. And pieces like this is why. And I wrote back to them. I wrote back to this person. Uh, I said, that woman in agony on the floor who can't get adequate pain treatment had Purdue just been happy selling the drug to people like her. This article would never have been written. The, the, don't, don't come in, you know, don't attack me for writing the article when, uh, you know, because then that, that, I'm an easy target, you know, for, for Purdue. The truth is it was their marketing tactics that are causing this woman to have pain. It's, it's the public backlash and the overprescribing that led to the addiction that made doctors clamp down. And the reason that happened was because Purdue sold the drug and they lied about the drug. And so I, I, you know, it's, 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 you know, there, it's a fine line there, but, um, you know, to blame the people calling out the perpetrators is, is a little ridiculous, but that, I mean, that's what we do in this country. We, we like to blame the victims. Um, yeah, it's a little backwards, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was like in the story, I think I referenced it, you know, uh, well, we'll get to, well, I'll get to that when we get into the lawsuit, but yeah, it is, it, it is. It is backwards. So we, you brought up the doctors a couple times. I think this is a good time to kind of point on that. One of the, or to, to point that out. One of the things last time um, that you that you and I spoke about, and I hear this often, and I know I've said it often, is oh, it's those damn doctors prescribing. They're over prescribing those damn doctors. It's their fault. Um, that there's there's much more to it than that. And you kind of pointed that out to me that you had felt uh, some sympathy for these doctors be, for what they had to go through. And I want to read a, just a, a short paragraph here. Um, it, it says, organizations funded by the pharmaceutical industry were created that rated doctors based on their willingness to treat pain and encouraged many family practitioners to begin prescribing outside of their normal scope of practice. The local family doctor suddenly felt pressure to prescribe powerful narcotics he or she might not have fully understood or else risk a scathing review from a group like the American Pain Society that could harm his or her practice. Uh, That's such a great point and it really does start to make sense and come together on how this whole setup really has uh, kind of taken shape. Yeah, I mean, Purdue, and, and this is where the parallel with the, the cartels and how the cartels basically bought into the system. They they were, you know, Chapo Guzman worked with the CIA. There's, there's, there's federal court documents stating that the Sinaloa um, has ratted out locations, for example, of rival cartels. Um, and you don't escape maximum security prison twice um, without having some connections. And so, uh, it was, you know, with the, with the cartels, what they did was they bought into the system and then made the system work for them where Purdue, um, you know, when Purdue started uh, in 1995, it was not common to, to treat there was the, the term chronic pain wasn't, uh, you know, a term that everybody knew. Um, painkiller, the painkiller game was pretty much stagnant, um, in the, in the early nineties and the eighties and the seventies, um, you know, there, there were no dramatic increases in treating pain and that all changed. And so the question then is why did it change and how did it change? And, um, Purdue knew it was going to need the doctors to prescribe the drug, um, because they, you know, they weren't going to be able to just start handing this stuff out on the street. Um, so what they did was they bought into the system that regulated the doctors. And so you can have a group, like you said, um, or, or for example, the Federation of State Medical Boards. 
um, they, you know, coincidentally, at the same time, they get 100000 from Purdue for printing marketing material and pamphlets, which I would love to know where they went, what printer charged them that much. Um, you <laughs> yeah. know, uh, Purdue gives them at the same, at that time is when the Federation of State Medical Boards starts saying that it's going to begin punishing doctors for not treating pain adequately. That was new. Wow. Um, you got, you've got um, the Joint Commission, uh, which is the most powerful accrediting institution in the world, uh, and you've got, um, they're the ones who regulate hospitals and issue directives of care in the hospitals, um, and uh, when they start, um, you know, getting huge amounts of money from the pharmaceutical industry, they say the same thing to the hospitals. You've got to start taking pain seriously. You've got to start treating pain, and the hospitals are saying, what does that mean? And they're saying, well, we're going to send someone in to help you and explain it to you. And who they sent in was Purdue. And so it, it was really, I mean, from a business standpoint, it was genius. Yeah, um, yeah. Because, because they, they, they bought the system. And, and, and then what you, so what happens is those institutions who are in charge of accrediting hospitals and regulating medical practice, um, they, they start demanding that these doctors, um, you know, start taking pain seriously. Well, a doctor doesn't, you know, family practitioner, they're not trained in pain management, but they're going to be held to the same standard as a doctor who's trained in pain management. So if you come into my office and you say you have pain, you know that, you know that little, I don't know if you've been to the hospital uh, where they've got like a little smiley face chart on the wall and they say rate your pain. Yeah. yeah or yeah. on a scale of one to 10, can you tell me how much pain you're in right now? Yeah. That's be, that's a direct result of, of what I just explained. Really? And what they did was they made pain what they called it a, they called pain the fifth vital sign. Um, so you know, along with pulse and blood pressure, you know, and all that, like things that are measurable, they made pain number the fifth one that all doctors have to um, check every time they see you. So, so for so, instance, if somebody goes in and they say, "What's your pain right now?" and they say, "Oh my God, I'm in so much pain," it's like a nine. It's a nine. So then, does that give them? Um, that gives them leeway or an idea to say, okay, I could prescribe, say, a drug like Oxycontin to this person because he said or he or she said that their pain was this ta- this this amount. Is that kind of well, what not, that means? Not even, give it le- not even give them leeway um, because look at it from the perspective of a doctor. Let's say you're a doctor who doesn't, who you don't like prescribing opiates. Okay. You know that they can be potentially dangerous. And a patient comes in and says, my pain's a nine. Okay. What do you do? Because if you say, okay, well, I'm going to give you some ibuprofen because I don't know you and, and prescribing opiates could be dangerous, and that patient leaves and they get one of those hospital surveys, um, what was your pain when you left? Or, or they call the doctor, the hospital and say, hey, I, I came there, my pain was not treated. Then that doctor can, is, a, is in danger of losing his or her job. Um, they can be, uh, it can affect their bonus with the hospital at the end of the year. It can also can affect their salary. Damn. Like they're being evaluated as a doctor based upon this patient. And the problem is pain is not measurable. That's why it's so ridiculous making it a fifth vital sign. Because yeah. like, you can measure yeah. blood pressure. If you come in and say, hey, my blood pressure is high, I can say, okay, let me check. Let me check it. Or if you say, hey, man, my heart, my heart's beating out of my chest. Okay, let me check your pulse. Those are measurable. Um, vital signs are supposed to be measurable. Pain is not. And so you're forcing me to treat something that I can't verify as a doctor. I can't measure their pain. I have to go by what they say, which just opens up a huge loophole in the system to be exploited by drug addicts. And I, and, and I know this because I was one of them. That's what's, that's what's yeah, the thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, it's I not know. like you don't it, have it, any experience with this shit, right? <laughs> yeah, I've scammed doctors. I, I yeah. know. That's the beauty uh, of you it. Know, I didn't know the things behind the scenes. I didn't know why the doctors were giving me what they were giving me, but I knew what to say to get them to give me what they were giving me. And now, looking now after having written this article, um, it really educated. It was, it's weird to, to research this and to write this having been one of those people who were exploiting the system. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I, I'm with you there. I, I came into this article, um, believing that doctors, uh, were a problem, were the problem here. And I, after having researched it and written the story, I, I came away with much greater sympathy and empathy for what the doctors, uh, are being, were forced to deal with. Um, I mean, we forced them to, to prescribe these drugs. In fact, state legislators, uh, who have no medical background, we're, we're passing legislation, uh, and, and I have, uh, a, a confidential source in the story. I think after that might have gotten edited out. Um, about two, there are about 2,000 more words to this. And this oh, it was really? a 6,000 word story and it got oh, wow. cut down to 4,000. But there was a, um, a member of the California Board of Pharmacy who told me, um, you know, that Purdue basically wrote the legislation in, in, in California that protected doctors from being liable for over prescribing. And so, um, I mean, Purdue bought not only the medical system, but the, the legislative system. Um, and, it, you know, so then you've got, so what do you do if you're a doctor? I mean, what, what, can you, what do you do? No matter how much you believe that what you're doing is causing harm, you don't have a choice because your superiors are demanding, um, you know, that you that you start prescribing these drugs. And so now looking back at it, I think the gen, you know, the member, a member of the general public, they probably also blame the doctors. And I feel for them for that too, because they're catching blame. They're catching all the blame. Both sides, huh? When, when it's really the system that failed and nobody's questioning the system. I mean, the FDA is still operating the same way. Lobbying still operating the same way. Like that, that whole system that got corrupted is still in place. Um, but everyone, you know, the people, it's much easier just to blame the doctors. And I have to admit, I'm as guilty as anybody when it came to that because I didn't, you know, I, I, I was under the misconception. I didn't understand. Yeah. I didn't, yeah. I didn't I fully think a lot understand. Of us. And so that's, that's one, that's one cool thing about being a writer and, and with writing is, is that sometimes, you know, as long as you're somebody who doesn't just cherry pick information to fit your, the notion or your conception that you came in with and you're willing to learn and you're willing to say you were wrong. Um, I think then maybe, you know, we can start seeing progress. You know, you're talking about this process, about how this works. I, I know there's a lot involved in it. And so I really encourage uh, everyone listening out there to go uh, to uh, authorjasonsmith.com and, and, and actually read the article for yourself. It's it's so interesting. Yeah, uh, read it on the realedition.com. I'm sorry. So, yeah, so realedition.com. Um, the one thing, too, I love how... In, if we were in Mexico, everything you just explained would be bribery. But in America, it's lobbying. Like the the comedy and the paradox of that is is ridiculous. Yeah, and that was a you know um, you got to be careful on the story like this because you don't want to get sued for libel. <laughs> and, um, and, and yeah, so oh yeah, I, I think one of the ways to the, you know the, writing the story it was it almost felt it was. There's two parallel narratives, and it almost felt like a painting. Almost, you could sort of, um, you know, cross over one. I, I never bring one Sackler's story into um, Guzman's or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, but you can use language to show parallels. You know, 
Um, so there's a line, you know, when it's talking about Guzman with the Guadalajara cartel, uh, this is where Guzman learned to really sell drugs. Uh, and then with Sackler, when in the 1950s, when he was with the marketing firm, this is where Arthur Sackler learned to really sell drugs. Um, and the, the same goes for the, the first lines of each paragraph. So uh, in Mexico, they call it, we call it bribery. When we look at their system and say, oh, look, they're in such a corrupt system. It's a narco state. It's a banana republic, whatever. Um, and, and, and we sort of sneer at it as if we're better. Yeah. And, and the truth is, we the same thing happens in this country, except we just it's just a different name. And uh, you know, and it's not just with lobbying and you know the difference between bribery and lobbying. Um, if uh, you know, uh, not to get too political here, but if if the United States, you know, um, from some drone sent a missile through the window of some guy's house in Afghanistan, and it's the wrong house, and we kill innocent people, and his people are dead. And we leave a, a community horrified and, and afraid because missiles are falling out of the sky. Um, we call that collateral damage. We say, yeah, man, that's, you know, sorry about that. Um, but that's something that needs to happen to further our cause. And, and that's just part of the game. That's just how it works. Where if it were reversed and there was somebody that sent a missile through, you know, from Afghanistan through the window of somebody in the U.S., we call it terrorism. And we say we call it terrorism because it it terrorized the public. People were were afraid. And, and but the, so the act itself can be the exact same thing. But what we call it is going to depend on our perspective. And so in the United States, we call it lobbying because bribery sounds a little harsh. Um, and it also is, we call it bribery in Mexico because that makes us feel a little better than them. And the truth is, it's no different. <laughs> yeah, that's so true, man. And it. Uh... You notice that even, uh, and this is this is beside the the topic we're talking about. But I just you bring up the verbiage of things and how um, how ideas can be shaped and around the verbiage that we use. Let's take a thing, whether or not you believe in it or you don't believe in it, that's for another debate. But let's take uh, global warming for for example. Okay, now, whether or not all the background behind it, eventually it was changed to climate change. Okay, maybe because it right. wasn't fitting a certain um, you know perspective that one uh, wanted to do at that time. It's the same type of thing. We use words um, and and they'll and change words at the same time too, uh, just to uh, to to present the message. I guess. Yeah, um, and we lean on those words so heavily that eventually the word becomes more important than what it's supposed to represent. Totally. So we can argue. So here we are. I mean, there there are people out there right now arguing climate change, global warming, man-made climate change. <laughs> yeah. And 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 it's like and nobody's looking at the fact that right now, where I live in California, we're in the uh, fourth year of a horrific drought, and it's ninety fucking degrees outside I know. in October. I know it's crazy. So so so, but we you know nobody's talking about that because we're still you know we're still fighting over the term, you know torture. They, we, what did they do? They called it. They start calling it enhanced interrogation <laughs> because people already associated the word torture with they had a negative connotation. Yep. And so America doesn't torture, but we might interrogate in an enhanced way, you know. And, and um, but I also think that can be used when it comes to the legalization for drugs. Um, so if we're going to treat drug addicts, um, you know, I've always been of the belief that just you know, if you've got a heroin addict. And there was a uh, a doctor or a hospital that could just prescribe them the drug um, and, and cut the cartel out of the picture. 
um, and, and really get involved in harm reduction for society. Because to me, when Guzman brings his product into the U.S., the actual product he brings in isn't the worst part of it. It's the trail of death and destruction in the marketing, the selling of that product on our street. That's the real that does the real damage. So the gangs that sprout up to sell his drugs and the violence that they perpetuate and and, and the people that they harm, that's all the result of, of the drug. And so if I, you know, if, but if we were to take a drug like heroin and change it to a, a medical term like diamorphine treatment, then maybe people could get on board with, with treating it. But heroin has such a negative, you know, people have this, this, this image of heroin and what a heroin addict looks like. And so I think, you know, when it comes to the power of, of names, I think we can play that game too if we, if we really wanted to. Just a quick, just a quick, uh, quick little note here. Speaking of that heroin, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, heroin overdoses in the U.S. have quadrupled between 2000 and 2013, with the biggest jumps occurring between 2010 and 2013. I know many of these overdoses are kids, and it it, it really is a sad thing. Yeah, and um, you know, going back to accountability uh, with. Uh, you know, most of those, there's a reason most of those drugs happen after, those overdoses happen after 2012. Uh, and that's because that's, that's the same time when Oxycontin changed in their tablet. So if you really want to look at the effect of Oxycontin on the heroin world, that's all you have to see. Um, I mean, yeah, there are other studies, other studies that prove it. Yeah. And I, I reference them in the article, the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the Journal of American Medical Association, and they've all done studies that show the transition from Oxycontin to heroin. And so I think that, so at that, you know, at that point, you really have to look at the two drugs side by side. If you're going to look at the two drugs side by side, then I think you have to look at who produces the drug side by side. And uh, in, in, in the story at the end there, when I, I talk about the lawsuit, um, see, to me, that's when everything changed. That's when, uh, when Purdue pled guilty um, to criminally misbranding its drug. So in other words, when it sold its drugs to doctors, uh-huh. they lied. They, they just flat out lied. They said there was less than 1% chance of addiction, which now in hindsight is laughable. But at the time, here's a new drug. They didn't know that. And so you're going to the doctors with these pharmaceutical representatives, and you're saying, okay, here's a new drug. It's a great pain medication. Uh, it has less than 1% chance of addiction. The patient doesn't build up a tolerance to the drug. They were all lies, and Purdue knew they were lies. And so, you know, going back to what I was saying before about, you know, to me what's sinister isn't the drug itself. That drug could probably help a lot of people who need it. Yeah. With the, what what was you know you know almost diabolical was the fact that they knowingly lied so they could get the drug into more people's hands and they, and th- that's not my opinion that's them in court admitting to the to lying. Um, not only did the as a corporation did Purdue plead guilty to felony charges, um, but the the, pre- the company's president pleaded guilty, the head doctor pleaded guilty, and the head lawyer pleaded guilty. That's crazy. And none like, of them. That's crazy. And none of them. And not did, a, go ahead. Not <laughs> a single one did a day of jail. I got not excited a, too a, to to say that because it's just fucking unbelievable how how yeah. you know we we lock up someone for selling some weed, but these you know these three never did a one day in jail. No, and and I and I talk about in the article how in Dade County, it was a mandatory three year sentence if you were caught with an oxycontin tablet that you weren't prescribed. Three years. Wow. Mandatory. Mandatory minimums, right? 
So here we are. Here we have a, a kid that's hooked, somebody who might be hooked on uh, Oxycontin. And the only reason they got hooked on Oxycontin is because the drug flooded the street and they got a chance to try it. And the only reason it flooded the street and they got a chance to try it was because this group of executives uh, determined that they would lie to the public. And those executives didn't spend a day in jail. So you've got the people who created this epidemic not going to jail, but you have a, a victim, and going back to victim blaming of the epidemic, that we're going to put them in prison for three years. I mean, it's crazy uh, who it we assess responsibility. You know, we, oh, well, it's, it's that addict's fault. Well, okay, but let's back up a little bit. Let's, how did this happen? Like, how did this happen? And so with Purdue pleading guilty, that was a game changer because they admitted to lying. And, and so at that point, in my eyes, I don't see them as any different um, than the cartels. In fact, I, I, I have a little bit more respect for the cartels because at least they admit what their product does and they admit that all they are is about making money. Um, Purdue, that's the level of drug trafficking and that, that Purdue has lowered itself to in my eyes, it is, is a company that was all about money despite... Um, the damage that it did to communities. Yeah, and 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 with that said, I think that you really just kind of brought you know this this article full circle um, in in the connection between Purdue uh, and the cartels. Um, I have a question for you regarding some somebody told me the other day. Um, hey, have you noticed that there's a lot more homeless people? They said tweakers. There's a lot more homeless tweakers around in the community. And 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 uh, this person said, "Well, yeah, I kind of have." They said, "Oh, that's because, um, that's because they let like six thousand drug offenders out on the streets, and they were they were upset about this, right?" Um, and it, not to wave any opinion either way, but this person was was upset. So I'm curious as um, and and if you don't want to get into this, totally cool. I'm just curious your opinion because I know both of us kind of agree that the war on drugs is a joke. How do you feel about that? Um, you know, re- releasing uh, these. Um, these men and women who who have drug related offenses out onto our streets. You know, I, I I don't believe you should just release them onto the streets, but I think you should offer them an option of some sort of treatment. I agree. And and, and so you know, I don't think you just open their jail cell door and say, "All right, man, peace, have yeah. fun, yeah, go have at it." You know, but you open their jail cell door and say, "Okay, I'm, I'm presenting with an option today. You can stay here or you can go here. And if you go here, you're going to get treatment for the addiction that brought you here in the first place." And and the problem is that's expensive, and those those programs cost money. Um, how in the world Purdue has gotten away, um, or the pharmaceutical industry in general has gotten away with not funding more drug treatment programs? Um, to me, is baffling because we do it to alcohol, we do it to tobacco, we do it to gambling. Any any industry where there's a where addiction is a byproduct of it, we force them to fund the treatment for it. Yeah, and, and and you know that's why when you're if you're at a casino and you go up to the casino cage, you see a little sign that says "Have a gambling problem? Call this number." You know, if you see an anti-drunk drinking and driving commercial on TV, chances are it was funded by Anheuser Busch. You know, it, it, so wow, uh, we point. force them. We force them, uh, and we say, and that's the price we say. We say, hey, if you're going to operate in our society, you have to. You know, just like if there's a paper factory in Ohio somewhere. That that's uh, you know in their treatment of, of wood to make paper, um, is is creating toxic waste. We also force them to treat. You know we don't let them dump it in the river. We say no, you've got to deal with this because this is a byproduct of what you're creating. And, and although your product might do good and it might be used properly, you also have this. 
And so you've got to deal with it in a healthy and responsible way. We don't do that with, with the pharmaceutical industry. And there's a huge byproduct of addiction that we're not forcing them to treat. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, I don't know how to make that happen. I don't know if that happens at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level. But um, to, so going back to your question, these addicts that we're releasing from prison should be going into programs. And these programs should be funded by the pharmaceutical industry, you know, at least partially funded by the pharmaceutical industry who helped create this problem. You know, and we, we all, this has to, like, I don't, at some point we've got to all get on the same page. Pharmaceutical, the government, the the pro, you know, everybody's got to get on the same page and start working on this problem. And the, you know, with Purdue, they've done the opposite. So um, one of the interesting side stories of of my article is the fact. So we talked about Purdue that they pleaded guilty. They the as a company they paid six hundred million dollars in fines, and each one of those executives had to pay ten million. So in all, it was $630 million that they paid. Slap on the wrist. So they, they, right. Yeah, I think they was, <laughs> their profits that year was $1.4 billion. Unbelievable. Um, so it's not like, you know, the people worked in there and still had money for lunch. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, at, so they, they paid it, and the, the federal government took the money and, and divided it up into 50 and sent it to each state, and the states put it in their general fund. Nothing got done with it because that, that was in 2007, and that was before the heroin epidemic hit. So the states didn't realize how what was about to happen. They didn't realize that, you know what I'm saying? The states didn't, because in 2007, there wasn't the heroin epidemic that was on its way, and nobody knew that. And so the states took the money, every state except, except for one, which was Kentucky. And so now, today, when the states go back and try to sue, or counties go back and try to sue, like what happened with Orange County recently, Orange County tried to sue Purdue and say, hey, your product is causing devastation in our community, and we want your help paying for it. Purdue said, nope, we already paid you guys. Oh, it's wow. done. It's almost like when you get in a car accident and the insurance sends you a check for a 1000 bucks. Yeah. If you cash that check, you don't get to come back at them and say, hey, I want more. You accepted the settlement. It's done. And so what's happening right now in the states, in the counties, is anytime they try to press Purdue uh, for help financially, Produced as, hey, we already settled with you guys, and judges and when it goes to court, judges are agreeing with Purdue. Um, the problem is Purdue, like I said, the state of Kentucky didn't take the money, and that's why recently, uh, uh, and I, I had a there was a whole section of my research on this on the state of Kentucky. I talked to the assistant uh, attorney general of the state in terms of what they're doing in their lawsuit with Purdue, um, and it's moved forward for one billion dollars. They're suing Purdue for one billion dollars. And the, and they're probably going to win. Wow. And so, and so, um, you know, but that's because they didn't take the money. So now, uh, Purdue, you know, le- from a legal standpoint, they probably are covered because they settled. They settled early. They settled, you know, they settled with the, if, if we want to take the analogy of a car accident, you know, they, they're the guy that hit you and paid you a hundred bucks on the cash just to shut up, on the spot to shut up. And then, you know, you go home and all of a sudden you've got these medical bills a week later, two weeks later, and you've already settled. And and so it's, you know, but at the time you settled, you didn't realize the extent of the damage. And that's what's, that's what's happened legally, uh, you know, um, in with Purdue. Now, from a moral standpoint, um, you know, we're really going to ask the company that I just described to to take a moral high ground on this and and just, (laughs) and help. So, was I mean, Ken, was where, Kentucky the only state that that didn't take the? Uh, they were. 
That's yeah, because so it was because it was a federal courthouse. So the Purdue um, settled with the federal government, and the federal government sent the money out to the states. Wow! And so, um, you know, I I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know if eventually you'll see a class action lawsuit like what we saw with tobacco. Um, but at some point, you know, it's the the problem. You talk about homeless, like here in uh, where I live in Auburn. Um, there's a, a growing homeless population. And the people that live here aren't used to seeing it. And they say, well, where are these homeless people coming from? What, what's happening? Why are they coming here? And the truth is, I was in San Francisco last week, and I overheard someone saying, man, I've never seen a homeless problem this bad. It's not mm-hmm. just my town. Yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah, it is. And so we're seeing, you know, we're seeing more and more homeless. Um, and, I, and and that's, of course, much a much bigger problem than just the drug problem. But it, I think they're tied together in that, you know, the homeless are disconnected with the rest of society. And there's a humongous disconnect there. And I think that same feeling of disconnection is what feeds drug addiction. And so if you've got a group of people who, you know, that don't feel like they belong um, or that they don't fit into the system, you know, people, you know, we need a drug, you know, look at these homeless people. Look at this guy. He's high on drugs, this homeless guy. Can you believe it? And it's like, yeah. Because if I was if I was sleeping under a bush every night, I'd probably want to get high too. Yeah, yeah, I'd probably be. You know what I mean? I'd want I'd want some kind of escape uh, from your glaring eyes of judgment uh, every day as as you walk by on your way to Target to buy a bunch of shit you don't need. Um, (laughs) You know, and I have to watch you look down on me. Yeah, Yeah, I probably want to get a little high and 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 take the edge off. You know what I mean? Like, so it's it's the same. I think it's the same. um, You know, it's that same feeling of disconnect. Uh, that feeds both, and um, you know, couple that with an economic system that's uh, favoring the wealthy and, and the middle middle class is disappearing. You're getting more people falling under the poverty line. Um, yeah, drugs do become a viable option. Uh, I, I don't blame uh, you know I can't knock someone for wanting to get high because they just lost their house or they have nowhere to live. Because I've gotten high in the past for it being overcast that day, <laughs> you know, like like I got high for a lot less reasons yeah. than the fact that my life was in shambles. So, um, you know, I, I yeah, I can't really blame that. And so, are we going? So again, we're going to attack the victim. We're going to blame the victim when really we should be looking at the system and where did the system fail? And going back to our very first conversation, uh, okay, what is working? And how do we replicate it? And what's not working? How do we fix it? You know, that's but those are hard questions, man. Nobody nobody wants to answer those questions. Nobody wants to get into that because yeah, yeah. then they have to look in the mirror. Then they have to look in the mirror and say, well, "What can I do?" It's much easier just to sort of um, you know externalize all your anger onto one person um, or one population and say they're the problem. Because it, you know, we talk about recovery. It's much easier for me to point out their flaws. Because as long as I'm pointing out their flaws, I don't have to look at myself and say, well, what am I doing wrong? Your, your work is extensive, man, and it's, it's just it's really great. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, man. Are you ever just amazed by – how long have you been uh, clean and sober? No, I'll be coming up on three years this December. Three, okay, so three years. Are, do you ever wake up and you're like, holy shit, three years ago – I was, you know, doing what I was doing, completely out of touch with reality, I'm assuming. And now here you are in this cause to fight, um, you know, for for other people, really, and for this cause. Are you ever amazed at, at kind of some of this work that you're doing? Because it's, it's really great, man, and I mean that. 
Well, I appreciate that. And, and I think it's, you know, I, I think having been down that road to hell and, and you know, getting really close to it um, has, now that I'm out of it, I can I have a greater empathy for human beings because I've, I've slept in a train station before. I've, I've, I know what that feeling of not having anything is. I know... Um, I know that feeling of, of waking up every day and doing a drug that I don't want to do, but I do it anyway. Like I know, I, I remember that it, it, it's a part of me now. And so now when I see it in other, you know, parts of the world or I see it in other people or I see a system that created it, like I want to change it. There's a part of me that wants to change it. Uh, and, and it's hard, man, because I don't want to get into like, um, that guy that wants, you know, um, thinks he's going to change, you know, yeah, yeah, change, change the, world. the world and shit. Yeah. You don't want to, you know, but at the same time, it's like, these are things that, you know, this story that, that we're talking about today in Kingpins, like it, it started just as a, a thought and it, it became, you know, what we're talking about now. And so I think, I think, yeah, it's amazing. Um, I think it's amazing, but I don't think I would have that same fight had I not been through it. Yeah, and it, it definitely gives you a firsthand perspective, um, you know, of, of many different situations. Uh, Jason, man, it's it's always great, like I said, talking with you, man. I really enjoyed it today. Uh, where can folks out there uh, contact you or find more of your work? So you can go on to therealedition.com, that's E-D-I-T-I-O-N, uh, to find Kingpins. Um, or you can go to authorjasonsmith.com, um, and you can check out some of my other work. Um and uh, yeah, you can hit me up on Twitter, Mr. J Zone, J A M R J A Y Z O N E. And um, yeah, you can bounce around and see if there's anything else you like. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate you coming on today. All right, man. I appreciate you having me back. This has been another episode of That Sober Guy Podcast. For more information, visit www.thatsoberguy.com. Contact Shane at sobriety at thatsoberguy.com. And leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Peace, love, respect. Keep your blood clean.